This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times, where we analyze the beat of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. This is Audrey Tan, and this is David Fogarty. Today, we are going to talk about trees and how useful they can be in the fight against climate change. Trees are all around us, and recently, we have seen many international initiatives touting reforestation as a way to tackle climate change. But is planting trees really all that easy? Today, we have Professor Ko Lian Pin, a conservation scientist at the National University of Singapore, to help us put all that jazz about trees into perspective. Welcome to the show, Prof Ko. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me, Audrey and David. Professor, tell us why trees are considered a good solution for climate change. Yeah, sure. So I think you and I, and probably most of your listeners, have all learned about photosynthesis when we were back in school, right? So just a quick recap: you know, over hundreds of millions of years of natural selection, trees and other autotrophic、uh, organisms on our planet have evolved the ability to convert carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to carbon in their biomass, including in their root systems, their tree trunks, branches, and leaves. So these process helps us to sequester carbon and lock them up in our natural vegetation. But you and your colleagues recently published a study which found that there could be limitations to, for example, large-scale planting of trees that some countries are planning or have been indeed carrying out. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So trees and other natural ecosystems, or parts of natural ecosystems, have great potential for addressing climate impacts. But on the other hand, they are also not without complications. What we did in our recent study was to take a realistic look at reforestation in Southeast Asia, in particular, by considering some of the practical considerations for reforestation. So, for example, a piece of land that appears to be degraded or abandoned may actually be used by the local communities to grow crops for subsistence or to sell to local markets. In that case, the land may not actually be available for reforestation, and even if there are no competing users of the land. There may still be other factors to consider for a reforestation project to be successful. For example, we may need to think about the manpower needs of reforestation, or where we could find the seed sources to grow new trees. And of course, there are also definitely financial considerations as well. Reforestation project is not very different from a commercial development in terms of the costs of establishing the project, perhaps in the first few years, and the costs of maintaining the project thereafter. So, while we found that there are approximately 120 million hectares of land across Southeast Asia that are biophysically suitable for reforestation. In reality, only a fraction of this potential、uh, may be realized if we start to consider some of these practical constraints. And, and so, our study's key take-home message is that the theoretical benefits of reforestation as a climate solution really needs to be tempered with a proper consideration and accounting of on-the-ground realities. So, Prof. Ko, your study has been very interesting, and I think that it's the first study to actually quantify the practical constraints of large-scale reforestation in Southeast Asia. Why is it important for governments to actually consider the trade-offs involved in reforestation? 
Sure. I think it's important for governments to understand both the potential and the constraints or limitations of any climate solution, including reforestation. And we think both the impacts of climate change and the solutions to climate change incur significant costs that may need to be quantified in financial terms. For example, if governments don't act in time, then sea level rise may reduce the property value of low-lying areas the coastal areas that might become flooded, or climate-related increase in the risk and prevalence of human diseases may result in larger medical expenses or budgets for society. So those are the costs of climate inaction. On the other hand, if governments want to act by, for example, implementing a reforestation project, that will also incur some costs. Now, there could be direct costs, such as the cost of establishing and maintaining the project over the next 10, 20 or 30 years. And there could also be indirect costs such as the uh, foregone revenue of not developing the land for agriculture or other profitable activities. Therefore, I think governments need to be able to evaluate the financial costs of both climate actions and climate inaction to make more informed decisions. Sorry, if I could just chime in here. Prof Kwa, I mean, you talked about the value of actually quantifying the cost and benefits of reforestation for governments. But your paper also pointed out the existence of many communities across Southeast Asia that could also incur costs. So what does this mean for these communities? Does it mean that there'll be a better way to try to get them more involved in the whole process of reforestation? That's a great question. I think there are always competing land users on the ground as well that involve local communities. There are different ways of reconciling these competing land uses that would depend on the local context. But I think I can give maybe three generic examples of how that could happen. At the local level, communities could be compensated for giving up agriculture or other profitable land uses for reforestation to happen. And in fact, reforestation itself may even become an alternative livelihood for these communities if the villagers could be employed to manage the project. Secondly, I think some farmlands may also be able to transition to an agroforestry system where there would be a mix of crop fields, for example, small stands of regenerating forests and, and so on. And in that way, the local community may continue to maintain their farms, albeit at a lower intensity while also contributing to climate mitigation efforts, perhaps uh, with some compensation or subsidy from governments. And I think the last example of what could happen is prioritization. And that is actually a key research focus for my group here in NUS at the Center for Nature-Based Climate Solutions. By gathering and analyzing different and multiple layers of data and information on land use, uh, land cover, on socioeconomic factors, and even on governance and other policy considerations, we can potentially come up with spatially explicit evidence-based information, such as maps that inform decision makers and helps them prioritize where they could be targeting their reforestation projects or other nature-based climate solutions to avoid conflicts, including conflicts with local communities, as much as possible, while at the same time still getting the biggest bang for their buck. 
Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation with Professor Ko Lian Pin, conservation scientist at the National University of Singapore on reforestation as a way to tackle climate change. So, Professor, clearly trees are a good solution, and in fact, they are the ultimate sort of natural solution. But there are clearly limitations too. We can't just wholesale just plant trees on all available space. So, is there still a case for planting trees as part of sort of global efforts to reduce the risks from climate change? Yeah, of course, of course, uh, trees are still very important. Tree planting and nature-based solutions in general are very important to address climate impacts. Now, of course, there are also human-engineered solutions, you know, human-engineered carbon capture and storage technologies, for example, that are being developed and deployed as pilot projects around the world. But the problem is many of these man-made solutions are still many years and, and perhaps even decades away from becoming commercially viable and, and operational at scale. So nature-based solutions, including reforestation, are hugely important because they are immediately deployable. Now, nature had already done the R&D for us. Nature had done the proof of concept and, and even the, the implementation at scale of carbon capture and storage for us. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recognizes this value of nature. In fact, the IPCC predicts that nature-based solutions, along with the decarbonization of our energy sector, are most important for climate mitigation over the next 10 years. So Prof Ko, we have talked a bit about nature-based climate solutions today. And as you mentioned earlier, at the National University of Singapore, you lead a new centre that focuses on these solutions. Can you tell us what are the other types of nature-based solutions that you and your colleagues are looking at beyond reforestation? Uh, yeah, sure, definitely. So maybe I'll begin by just stating the problem we are addressing today, right? So our current climate crisis is caused by, well, mainly by the release of huge amounts of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And where does this carbon dioxide come from? They come from the burning of fossil fuels to generate the energy that society needs. And to tackle the climate problem, we urgently need to do two things, essentially. First, we need to reduce emissions from fossil fuels by transitioning to renewable sources of energy, such as solar power. Second, we need to find ways to, well, basically suck the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And how can we do that? We learned in school that uh, photosynthesis is the way that trees and other natural vegetation make use of the energy of the sun to convert carbon dioxide to carbon in their biomass. And that is exactly what we need to do to reverse the uh, process of emitting carbon dioxide. And through photosynthesis, we see the forests and mangroves and other natural ecosystems around us, which are the products of that process. And nature-based climate solutions are essentially just ways of making use of nature's superpower, if you will, of carbon capture and storage through photosynthesis to help us fight climate change. And examples of these nature-based solutions include protecting our remaining forests and restoring degraded or abandoned lands back to a more natural state. And doing that will ensure that nature can continue to provide us with her services to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, increase carbon dioxide sequestration, and enhance our resilience to climate change. 
But Professor, isn't it ironic that on the one hand, we're turning to nature and nature-based sort of climate solutions to help reduce the risk from climate change. But on the other hand, we're doing a great job in destroying nature. You know, we need to do a much better job in trying to protect the forests, mangrove forests, the oceans and so forth, the very ecosystems that we rely so heavily upon. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about why we need to do a better job in looking after nature itself. Uh, yeah, that's a great question, David. I think when people talk about or think about nature-based solutions, their minds immediately turn to perhaps reforestation, restoring a, a degraded land back to its former glory. But in fact, nature-based solutions include protecting our remaining forests, what we currently have. And that, in fact, is one of the most important buckets of solutions within the nature-based uh, set of solutions. So definitely, there's no point in growing new forests if we are not going to invest in protecting the pristine forests that we still have. The two sets of solutions would have to go hand in hand. Prof, are there any figures that show exactly how much nature-based solutions can contribute to the global fight against climate change? Yes, so recently there have been quite a bit of research done to try to look at the potential of nature-based climate solutions in terms of mitigating the impacts of climate change. And researchers, including ourselves, find that approximately nature-based solutions can address approximately 30% of the climate mitigation efforts that is needed between now and 2030 for us to achieve the two degrees Celsius target of the Paris Climate Agreement. So it's a hugely important set of solutions, especially over the next 10 years. So thank you, Prof Ko, for joining us today. And I guess we will look forward to more papers coming up from your centre that will help policymakers around the world, well, in a way, not miss the forest for the trees. Thanks very much, Audrey and David. It's been my pleasure. For more information on reforestation as a nature-based solution to tackle climate change, do check out the stories in The Straits Times. That's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.